0: Well, hi everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. My name is Alexi Lavecchio and I am the National Forest Organizer at KS Wild. With me here from KS Wild is Rodea Minter, our conservation associate, and she will be assisting with this webinar and monitoring questions in the Q&A box. We also have Joseph Vale with us here and he'll be tonight's moderator. Today we are kicking off the Fire and Climate Summit webinar series with our first webinar on preparing for wildfire during the COVID-19 pandemic. We are so grateful for you all being here tonight. And just before we get started, a quick overview of tonight's webinar. We have three panelists, and there will be a Q&A session at the end of all the presentations where we will answer as many questions as we have time for. And now I'm going to turn turn it over to tonight's moderator, Joseph Bale.
1: Thank you, Alexi. My name is Joseph Vale, and I am the Climate Program Director here at KS Wild. Uh, First of all, I want to thank all the people and organizations that collaborated to make this webinar series possible. The Fire and Climate Summit was developed with Lomakotse Restoration Project, SOCAN, the Jackson County Fuel Committee, Red Earth Descendants, Southern Oregon Land Conservancy, Vesper Meadow, Fairbanks forest management, and many partners with our land management agencies. I know that we all share an interest in providing this forum to discuss these critically important topics. Where I work at KS Wild, we have the great pleasure and deep responsibility of working to protect biodiversity in one of the most spectacular places on earth, the klamath siskiyou region. Knowing that climate change is a grave threat to our mission, and that we're entering an era where wildfire will become more prevalent, we began a dialogue with our partners to develop this forum to discuss the intersection of climate change, wildfires, and our human and natural communities. This is a story that is being told around the West and frankly, all over the world. While the realities of the COVID pandemic prevent us from having an in-person meeting, we hope this summit empowers all of us to use our voices to promote climate smart practices where we live. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first panelist. Dr. Dr. Christopher Dunn is a research associate in the College of Forestry at Oregon State University. Chris works to bridge the gap between science and management to better prepare land and fire managers for the changing fire environment. Chris is also on the front lines of the conversation about how fire season will be impacted by COVID-19. Thanks for joining us, Chris.
2: I think I got the wrong screen there. So it's the opportunity to come and speak with you as well as uh, all those attending virtually. And let's see if we can get there. That was a good picture of my twin boys who have been home with me for an order of two months now. So I've been asked to uh, give you a little bit of long arc history of um, how we've gotten sort of into what we might consider a predicament or the challenge, wildfire challenge today, um, as well as uh, layering in, in this, this COVID Pandemic and what we would consider, you know, if we do have a fire, an incident within this broader pandemic incident, and what that might mean for land or fire management uh, this coming fire season. And so, thinking about that long arc, you know, we're really talking about um, a new transition from one paradigm to another. We've gone through these transitions in the past, notably in the early 20th century, um, following European colonization of the West. Um, where we encountered an indigenous population uh, that used fire in a different fashion, used it to um, provide sustenance and manage the landscape for their needs. Um, And of course, coming out of say World War II and the Korean War, we transitioned into what you see here uh, on the side of the screen where it became much more mechanized and and really a suppression paradigm. And and this was a fundamental shift in this relationship that uh, humans had with the natural environment via wildfire and fire management. Um, And and there's been some, of course, uh, changes across the landscape and some consequences on on fire and fire management even today. Now, you know, much of this mechanized or exclusion paradigm really followed um, the establishment of the U.S. Forest Service and um, following the 1910 Big Burn, a real emphasis to um, exclude fire to to, um, increase the timber reserves. Uh, across the United States to help build the nation that we currently reside in um, under the the concerns of a timber famine uh, following the management of the the lake states in the northeast. And so as we look to the west and Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot began to set up many of the forest reserves and now the national forest system today, that was a a primary focus. Now in in that transition and selling of the need for a broad forest service organization following the 1910 burns, and and, uh, Congress funding those agencies to much greater degree, there was a lot of debate even at that time as to how we want to manage and deal with fire. And at that time, it was really the the timber industry that was um, functioning and establishing in California and and the West more broadly, really advocating for a continuation of the uh, prescribed burning practices of the indigenous populations at the time. And that's what you see up here is how fire helps forestry and that was if we can maintain fire risk, maintain low fire risk in the dry forest, then we can protect the wetter forest um, for what they wanted to do with those in managing for timber at that time. And, you know, the Forest Service really pushed back. Here you can see Henry Graves saying, you know, it may save the lumberman's property, but it destroys forests of the future. Uh, and they set up a light burn committee and, and went to explore this issue in earnest for, you know, up, you know, up until about 1920. And at that time, they really came to the conclusion that uh, light burning was a fallacy. And of course, we've, we're continuing this debate even to today. And although many of the positions have shifted and perspectives have shifted among who's supporting more fire management versus more fire exclusion. Um, but at the time we've been in this debate and we've been in this debate continue, you know, continuous since you know, really in the early 20th century. Well, the exclusion paradigm did win. You know, I, I, I like to put this up because it seems like even today we try to put out the sun if we could. Um, but you see Smokey Bear really pushing forth um, a, a this fire exclusion paradigm, at, and, you know, amongst the public and more broadly. And, you know, there, there are some, some justifiable reasons to pursue that in, in portions of the landscape, but not so much in others as we've transitioned to uh, a more ecological perspective and holistic perspective of public lands management. Now, much of the issues that we're wrestling with today were realized early in the 1940s. And here in this, uh, in the Journal of Forestry published in 1943, Harold Weaver was really um, describing on the east, eastern slope of the Cascade Mountains here in Oregon. So Harold Weaver worked for uh, the Klamath tribes and the Warm Springs tribes at this time. And he was, he was really researching the effects of, in this case, exclusion of fire on the increased densities of these forests and the consequences of that in both a civil cultural perspective as well as an ecological perspective. And so we, we we're really seeing the consequences of those decisions in that trajectory that um, public lands management was on as early as the 1940s and we can still see those consequences. Um, now this is, of course is a really frequent fire forest, uh, dry forest on the east side of the Oregon Cascades here, but there are other consequences that are uh, maybe more salient and, and important to the climate Clamassiskiouik region, and that is um, the loss of, on this right side, early, these diverse early successional habitats, and so fire exclusion uh, limited their extent on much of the landscape, as well as what I think of as a much probably the most structurally complex post fire environment which follows moderate severity fire. And these images are from the Anqua National Forest, so a little bit farther north, wet but still a frequent fire forest. And, um, and, and these type of post-fire conditions are indicative of what we often see even in the Siskiyou Mountains. Um, and so there are consequences of the exclusion paradigm on not producing these types of post-fire structures and then the biodiversity that develops from those as well. And so you can really see, dependent on the ecosystem you're in, a varied effect on what that exclusion paradigm meant. And that's not it. That's not the only changes to the landscape. We've also seen pretty significant changes from other management strategies. What you see here is a, a an aerial view from LIDAR of tree heights, um, in this case up by Roseburg, Oregon, and the burn severity map that's uh, related to that. And so you can see the management, i.e., in this case, some, some plantation forestry versus some of these larger old growth patches retained across the landscape here in blue. And you can see how fire severity yeah, um, correlates pretty well with the structure of the forest, even from a management paradigm. And here on the right, you can see the consequences of an actual fire event. In this case, the Douglas complex burning one of the a plantation, in this case, all at once in a very structured and uniform fuel bed. And so we've seen an increase in fuels from fire exclusion, as well as an alteration of forest structure with consequences directly on the outcome of contemporary fires. Uh, Concurrently, we've seen a a long-term shift in the climate. And this is from Medford, from instrumentation starting back in 1895 and going up through uh, 2017. And on the left is average summer temperature for the summer on the right is precipitation. And what I really want to bring your attention to is, so early on, we had pretty moderated temperatures and we've seen pretty significant deviation in Maniford, uh, to much hotter summer temperatures, uh, as well as much um, cooler or, mo- or less moisture during the summer as well. And as we entered into that highly dense forest and that transition from our management actions into more dense forests and more uniform fuel beds, um, fire management was supported by a cooler and more moist summer climate in the southwestern Oregon region. And it may, it, it gave the, the, I guess, the false impression that that type of management and those expectations from our landscapes and the fire management system that we have in place was sustainable and could, could um, uh, be brought into the future. But climate change has certainly shifted that and changed those perspectives. And of course, with that, we have seen a much greater extent of fire uh, since, really since the 2000s when it appears we've shifted into a new really fundamental climate regime. At the same time, we see this continued expansion of the law urban interface. And that has really brought us to this idea that we need to learn to live with fire. And this is a national cohesive strategy today um, where we're de-emphasizing fire exclusion where appropriate, to expand more of the right kind of fire in the right places for the right reasons at the right time and overall foster resilience and adaptation of our uh, and ecosystems as well as our communities that live adjacent to and rely on those those ecosystems. And here you can see you know really a, a cabin that's been adapted to some degree to be functional for fire managers to operate in um, and, and is one way that we're starting to see communities adapt. Well you know that's been the long arc of history but today we're really dealing with a, a new issue and that is of course this COVID-19 pandemic that we're all experiencing and has been profound effects on our, um, our government, our society, and will have implications for fire management. And so what you see here on the left is the Chief of the Forest Service, so Vicki Christensen's uh, recent letter on the expectations of fire season this coming year and some points that are being made is that we will need to minimize to the extent feasible COVID-19 exposure and transmission of course and with that smoke exposure to firefighters since smoke uh, can exacerbate the the outcomes of being affected by the novel coronavirus and so smoke has some issues both for the firefighters and the public as a whole Um, and you can see really we're talking about maybe smaller teams working independently, a common operating p- picture, and ordering only what is necessary to meet the clearly defined objectives. And that's really what we're talking about in this final uh, response. Then um, we wanna prioritize the use of local suppression resources with the predominant strategy being remote containment. Um, we'll, we'll discuss each of these points a little bit in, in a little bit more detail as I, I move through this presentation, but we're talking about rather than having an influx of firefighters uh, moving around the country and potentially bringing in and transmitting the virus that we would rely on more local resources, Um, they're going to attempt to be more successful at initial attack and we'll talk about that a little bit more in that being this year specific. So uh, deviating a little bit from the um, cohesive strategy and then commit resources only when there's a reasonable expectation of success, specifically in protecting life and critical property and infrastructure. So these, these are some of the real focal points that the chief of our public lands, the National Forest System is really driving forth. Um, and let's tackle these a little bit independently. So minimizing viral exposure and transmission. This is what a fire camp looks like. And as you can see, social distancing is not a norm. And so, Bob, this would be a morning briefing of, uh, say, the, the fire bosses for the, the, the crew bosses, the engine bosses, the division supervisors, et cetera, uh, hearing from the incident management team about the objectives and the actions that are going to be taken that day. And you can see uh, what this looks like in a normal fire season. And so, we're really talking about shifting that, minimizing that exposure through some social distancing and other metrics, and the challenges inherent when you have this large of a crowd present, as well as how do you house all of these folks. This is the typical tent city that you see, um, which also doesn't provide for strong social distancing and of course the, the consistent use of food facilities and laundry and, and um, other facilities provided by these pops. And so there's going to be some real challenges there. And then we've actually had a couple small incidents where some crews have tested. These opportunities to social distance and they've been significantly challenged in their efforts to do that and their abilities to wear masks and communicate effectively with each other hear each other um, or uh, you know be able to be supported with sustenance uh, in the field without um, breaking those social distancing rules. And If we look at this as a whole system now just think about these great boxes for a second you, you know you really start at this home station bunkhouse You travel to a fire, there's a potential for an infection during that. Uh, You travel, you know, you get to your fire assignment, maybe you have some screening. Uh, With that screening, you could infect others as they're attempting to ensure that those arriving at the fire um, are not bringing in the virus. That is an opportunity and a contact point where we could see more. Um, Then you return to the fire and there's an, you you return from the fire and there's an opportunity that you contract that just from the general public in, in your efforts to, to mobilize and move around the country um, and back to the home station. And this could result in, if screening is positive and you end up out of there, you know, you you put those firefighters and maybe those that they interacted with into treatment and quarantine, could be a 14-day isolation. Um, We have an opportunity for modified strategies and logistics to minimize some of that exposure, Um, but that fundamentally shifts in that fire response. And, and when we're looking at this, you know, in, in a list form, we're really talking about exposure from travel, screening fails, we may see asymptomatic folks uh, moving around fire camps um, and, and not even know it, and that can have a cascading effect on the, the capacity of the fire managers to do it, what it is that, that they need to do, um, as well as individuals, you know, not self-isolating when they get home. And so we really, you know, the fire managers are in in real time right now attempting to do everything they can to figure out how to mitigate each of these potential failure points, which there are many, and there are many small, you know, failure points within each of these broader classes. Um, Are they interrelated? What are the implications on capacity? Should there be an infection? Who's infected? Is it a team leader that's infected? Is it a firefighting member? and then contact tracing within that system and and the challenges that are gonna be presented in doing so. And so we've mentioned only hiring or using local resources. So here's a a depiction of the resources used in this case on the 2017 Lolo Peak fire. Um, And and you can see this over time. So this fire was burning from uh, mid-August all the way into October ultimately before they called it out and you can see the distribution or number of firefighters, total personnel on this left and this the over on the right and where they came from. So the deep purple would be very local. These are low, low national force staff personnel. Now, they usually pull off after some time, after some time on a large fire to be available for that initial attack stage. And so you see these dips and these ramp ups um, reflective of that. Uh, And so there could be a few more local resources available than are depicted here because they're intentionally pulled off um, if there's a large fire event. But notice that just from within, in this case, it says the northern region is what NR is. So that would be within uh, Montana primarily uh, where resources came from and then outside of that northern region. So maybe in the yellow here, we're really seeing firefighters coming from California, Oregon, maybe from Arizona, New Mexico depending on the conditions of the fire season and where they may come from. And what we can see here is that a large abundance of firefighting resources, including overhead personnel that you see on the right, come from afar to support firefighting efforts. And if there are constraints or a breakdown in that system of sharing for whatever various reasons, which could be political, it could be uh, internal to prevent more, more infections, uh, the consequences of what that might be on the, staffing of said fires and that's really this potential emphasis on we need to go to the right places at the right time as quickly as we can make that one best shot that we have um at managing that fire most appropriately and really allocate and focus on protecting communities and lives chris i just wanted yes. to chime in and give you a two-minute warning thank you uh back to the iaa success so here's that period that i noted that was uh cooler and moisture during the 20th century is here in the red. And here's our initial attack success rate as a whole for all agencies across the United States. And what you can see is that they are never 100%, not even when the climate is favorable and in our favor, and it's been declining a little bit. It's a marginal decline. We're still meeting this 98% threshold, but a rapid increase that you see here in the bars in the increase in area burned, uh, driven by those increased fuels and a changing climate. And, and not all fire outcomes are, are particularly negative when this happens, but uh, there certainly is an increase in extent in the production of smoke. And so, when we're thinking about then how to allocate and best utilize our resources, uh, we are developing and working on strategies to do so. And this little video will summarize that for you in about two minutes.
3: Welcome back to the Ponderosa Pine National Forest, where staff are working together with the wildfire risk management science team to create more proactive wildfire risk management plans. One of the challenges of spatial fire planning is identifying control locations where operations can be safer and have a higher likelihood of success. This is especially important because control opportunities often don't align with ownership boundaries. With a plan in mind ahead of time, everyone involved can be clear on the best actions to take, even in a cross-boundary fire. The science team brings several tools to the table for this effort. The basic ingredients of these tools are intuitive and designed to complement local expertise and judgment, quantitative wildfire risk assessments, suppression difficulty index, and potential control locations that help form potential wildfire operational delineations also known as PODs. The quantitative risk assessment uses fire modeling and expert analysis to estimate benefits and losses from fire. Suppression difficulty index provides an assessment of the potential hazards and opportunities for fire responders by balancing expected fire behavior with access and mobility. The Atlas of Potential Control Locations maps local conditions where fire lines have and have not been effective in the past, and provides a measure of operational opportunities and challenges for suppression. By overlaying suppression difficulty and potential control locations on a map of quantitative wildfire risk, we develop pods that summarize risks to important values while highlighting opportunities to effectively engage fire. The science team is already deploying these tools in planning applications on national forest system lands across the western United States, including for real-time decision support on dozens of large fires. Incident management teams use these tools to prioritize responder safety and assess suppression opportunities on fire operations. And forest managers and their neighbors, like here on the Ponderosa, use these tools to integrate fire into landscape planning prioritize fuel treatments, and create or improve control opportunities to reduce risk to things they value. Can the wildfire risk management science team help with assessment and response planning in your area? Contact us to find out how we can help your forest and
1: neighbors plan for the next fire. Great, thank you, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, we're gonna um, keep moving along here, but that's an incredible task that you just completed fitting all of that in, um, the history of fire and now um, how to deal with fire during a pandemic. Um, Thank you so much. Um, So uh, the next up, we actually have another Chris. Um, We have Chief Chris Chambers, who has worked at the Ashland Fire and Rescue since 2002. Chris coordinated the National Fire Plan Grants for six years with hundreds of private landowners, co-authored the 2004 Ashland Community Wildfire Protection Plan and the ongoing implementation of the Ashland Forest Resiliency Project. Chris is going to tell us a little bit more about his work to help protect interface communities in southwest Oregon from wildfire. Are you there, Chris Chambers?
4: I am, can you hear me? Yes. Okay yep, hear great you. and if my screen will work right, I'm going to make this full screen. And I will say, Chris, um, the other Chris,
1: his, his audio was choppy, I think, for a lot of folks. You sound pretty good, so I'll, I'll come in and let you know if it sounds choppy. And, and we're also okay. running a few minutes behind,
4: so that's why. Uh, you uh, Do you see my first slide? Fine. Good. Okay, great. What I want to tell uh, everybody about, and this is an example just from the community of Ashland, but uh, these principles apply widely to the uh, entire uh, Clematiskew area, Northern California, anywhere basically uh, in wildfire territory. So uh, don't think just because this is a national example, it doesn't apply. So indeed, uh, as Dr. Dunn talked about, uh, we, we're on a, um, a, a scary stairway into the unknown in uh, climate. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to close the window because birds are chirping outside. right, nice ambiance, but uh, probably a little distracting. Uh, So here's uh, one piece from uh, Ashland's Climate Energy Action Plan, a 30% uh, increase in the probability of large fires uh, from uh, recent research. And then also looking at the whole Pacific Northwest, we could uh, expect somewhere by mid-century around 300 to 400% more acres burned. Um, Not great news if you're a community in that area, but the good news is we do have a framework that we work under and sometimes it seems like this work with communities is a little bit hit or miss that we're not co- uh, coordinated with public agencies, with private individuals, with local agencies, the feds. Uh, it doesn't seem often to, I think the average person that we're on the same page, but there is something that ties us all together and it's called the National Cohesive Wildland Fire Management Strategy or just the cohesive strategy. Uh, there are three blocks of the cohesive strategy uh, fire adapted communities, resilient landscapes, and uh, safe effective wildfire response, which uh, Chris Dunn just uh, finished talking um, a lot about the wildfire response side. And then that's all tied together in the middle by uh, science. So let's uh, focus first on resilient landscapes. Um, you got a little bit of the history from Dr. Dunn about how we've ended up in a, a bit of a predicament through various um, mismanagement and well-intended, but um, ultimately detrimental policies leading up to the present time. Uh, and then across the landscape, there are a lot of values that we all hold very dear uh, about our forests, including drinking water, and there are, there are a lot of national forests throughout Oregon and in the Pacific Northwest and Northern California that provide drinking water. This one happens to be the City of Ashland's drinking water supply and Reader Reservoir just above town. Um, Similar issues uh, that then the other Chris talked about, uh, really dense forests, we live in a frequent fire ecosystem, it's been missing fire for many, many decades, and we end up with forests like this as a result. uh, And those are very fire prone and especially where they're next to communities, as well as uh, in areas that provide drinking water, the results of fires can be really devastating to those uh, adjacent communities. So Ashland in particular has tackled it in a unique way. Um, This is really a project that's the culmination of decades of work that uh, started at a very small level and then grew and grew into really the landscape of the greater Ashland area up to the top of Mount Ashland, which you see, and that's called the Ashland Forest Resiliency Stewardship Project, a project involving four partners, the Nature Conservancy, the City, the Forest Service, and Lomakatsi Restoration Project. Many of you have seen our smoke uh, and some of the work that we've done above town for what has been 10 years in this project already. So now we're actually, uh, we've extended that. I forgot to change it. It's now a 15 year stewardship project. And we added five years. Um, it started out as a 7,600 acre uh, very project that uh, really strategically developed following many of the same principles that you saw in the video about the pods or the potential operational delineations focusing on our forest restoration and fuels reduction in areas that are going to be really helpful uh, during summer wildfire suppression scenarios. But also respecting the complexity of the ecosystem. Nothing is really is done to create a product. There are some byproducts that go to local mills, but really the driving force behind this is reestablishing the patchy habitats that once existed here for thousands of years um, and really drive biodiversity, it's something that, of course, our region is really well known for. The way that this project has functioned is through a master stewardship agreement, which is a really different way of doing business on federal land and, uh, for the U.S. Forest Service, where all the partners share in their responsibility. We share our expertise and uh, we have a shared outcome. Uh, one of the important pieces, uh, when it first started was getting funding. We had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, that came along and infused $6 million. Here's a Lomakatsi crew getting put to work. Uh, during the, uh, the 2008 economic turn down, uh, downturn, hopefully uh, so we don't see one quite like that, but it does seem we're right headed in that direction. Um, and here's some examples of um, what some of the work looks like, thinning out fuels and um, both putting a lot of uh, workers on the ground. Uh, we really take pride in a lot of the training that went on of the workforce. Uh, we had tribal workforces that came from the Klamath tribes and trained here in Ashland on AFR and now they're back in Klamath implementing uh, restoration type forestry on the east side. Here's a great example of thinning small brush around a big old ponderosa pine that we're trying to protect. And then uh, also some um, light on the land, light touch, helicopter thinning, cutting trees and then lifting them off the ground to reduce impact on fragile soils. That doesn't need to happen everywhere, but in a watershed, it's particularly important. Uh, We had very limited uh, roadside thinning, uh, very selective, taking out small trees. The average tree taken out on AFR was 13 inches. So we really focus on the trees that have come in after fire suppression. And hopefully when we get done with it, we get something like this, where we have the larger older trees and a lot of space in between. And now we're in a situation where we can actually reintroduce fire that really key ecosystem process that Dr. Dunn referred to, and everybody, I think a lot of people realize now how integral fire is to our ecosystem and the health of our forests. We start off by doing that in piles uh, as we're dealing with that uh, initial fuel load that we've inherited from over a century of fire suppression. And uh, once we're done with that, we can actually think about reintroducing the process of fire across an entire area sometimes called a broadcast burn or uh, prescribed underburn. Uh, We've been doing these uh, around Ashland since about 2012, pretty systematically, um, typically in the springtime when uh, we can retain uh, a lot of the soil protection because of uh, moisture in the soil. A big uh, important part of Ashland's work is community engagement, having events, getting people out in the forest to understand what's going on. Uh, including students. Uh, We've engaged a lot of youth over the years. And then uh, doing a lot of uh, outreach about burning and smoke. We have a good fire, bad fire campaign, um, and we have smoke and health outreach. And we actually created a whole program that spun off from AFR that's called Smokewise Ashland that uh, is a partnership with the Chamber of Commerce, Jackson County, with the Asante Health System, Um, Fire Adaptive Communities Learning Network, Southern Oregon University, we all pitched in, uh, created a website as a resource in particular for the bad summer smoke that we've experienced over the past five years. Um, And and indeed um, it has been stifling at times. 2018 we had 24 days of unhealthy or worse air. But if you contrast that to what we experience when we're doing the prescribed burns, which could be smoke impacts of just Um, A few hours to a day. Um, It really is, although it is still a bit of a bitter pill. It's still the medicine that uh, We need for the health of the land and the safety of our communities. Some examples of what we've done uh, to help prepare the community for smoke, both from the burning side and the summer wildfires And uh, some happy workers out there on the landscape, um, getting to know their local land and learning lots of important skills. A big part of what we do is monitoring. The Nature Conservancy is in charge of our monitoring project Uh, we want to know that what we're doing is having the effect that we intended it to and that we're not having uh, negative effects that we didn't anticipate. So there's a whole host of items you can see that are in our ecological monitoring and that's that's a really important piece of what we do to stay transparent with the community. And then the, the last piece we've been able to do under the Ashland Forest Resiliency Banner is expand this to an all lands project. And this is one of the important things about the cohesive strategy. It's not just about federal land, about state, local or county uh, Or private. It's about all lands working together. So we expanded the, our, our federal lands project to uh, now 52,000 acres of all lands and we've got funding to help private landowners and that we've done work on city land, on parks land. Uh, we're trying to incorporate the BLM, which we just have a tiny bit of. Uh, so we, we try to ignore the boundaries just like a wildfire would.
1: Hey, Chris, just, sorry to interrupt. I just wanna, could you do uh, just a couple more minutes? So we make sure to have time for Pam and Q&A. Yep. At the okay. End.
4: Thanks. So fire-adapted communities are, are really important where people live uh, in relation to forests and exposure. We've had those kinds of fires here in Ashland, the Oak Knoll Fire, uh, the fire before that. Um, so we've got that history. And so we're doing a lot of things to try to model uh, what we think is gonna happen if there's fire, including mapping out where the fuels are, assessing homes and giving them fire hazard ratings. One of the big factors that people have to think about in wildfire exposure is embers and how far these are gonna travel Homes that aren't even uh, um, impacted directly by fire can be impacted by embers. Uh, So this is an ember spread map of the city of Ashland, which we were able to create uh, modeling the spotting distance. And then another really important concept is how close your neighbor's houses are and how flammable they are. So you're not just in it alone. You have to work with your neighbors. Um, And this is an example of that in our home ignition zone map um, figure there. Uh, Ashland has done a lot with wildfire prevention codes um, and these are available to all kinds of communities um, throughout uh, Oregon and Washington or in California. Uh, California has some really great codes in fact. Um, We address new construction. We are also from the vegetation side and we're also looking at adopting a new Oregon um, building code for wildfire hazard mitigation about which really addresses how homes are built and the materials they're built from. This is based off of a California code that started in 2007. We have a very active FireWise Communities program, uh, which uh, blankets all of the region. And so if you're interested in FireWise, contact um, your uh, local forest department, forestry department, Oregon Deport- Department of Forestry, or maybe CAL FIRE. Um, we've hosted debris drop off days. Another and then also done a lot of education on evacuation. We have the ready, set, go evacuation model. It's worth everybody out there being registered with your local community alert system that might be at the county level in Jackson and Josephine counties. Uh, It's at the county level in Ashland. It's a program called Nixle. Um, And then the safe effective wildfire response part uh, is uh, exactly what Dr. Dunn described. We're doing this in Ashland and actually we're going to work together with Chris Dunn and his colleagues on putting together the pods approach, but we've been doing a similar approach for many years. Uh, we call the wildfire tactical opportunities model. Uh, it just makes suppression more effective when their fire is on the ground. It actually used that map and the, um, the work that we did in the 2009 Siskiyou fire, which this is a picture of, that was on the edge of Ashland. And doing all that work around your home and being prepared really invites firefighters in to feel safe and that they can protect your home uh, because you've done the work and you've become fire wise. So that's what I've got. Um, there's a lot that people can be doing out there right now. Um, a lot of us are stuck at home because of the COVID issue, and it's a great time to be outside doing landscaping, uh, sweeping up needles and leaves, cleaning out gutters, and creating defensible space around homes. So happy to pass it on. Thanks, Justice.
1: Thank you so much, Chief Chris. That's what I'm going to call you now. Um, And I I would just say, you know, all these topics, we're going to be going into more detail in our subsequent Webinars. So um, especially the the defensible space and wildland urban interface issues, which are so important to so many of us that live here in Southwest Oregon and Northwest California. So Without further ado, our final presenter is Representative Pam Marsh. She uh, is currently serves in the Oregon House of Representatives um, representing the fifth district, which covers Southern Jackson County, including the city of Ashland. She's been active in policy changes to address climate impacts and wildfire preparation in Southern Oregon. She'll tell us a little bit about that and hopefully tell us how COVID-19 pandemic is also affecting um, wildfire policy.
5: Thank you. you. Am I live? Can you hear me?
1: Yes, you're good.
5: Okay. Well, we were going from that beautiful um, background of Mount Ashen to my very prosaic but real-life Zoom background here in my dining room. And I am so glad to be here with all of you. You have heard from the Chris's um, a lot about the science and the practice of forest management. As the elected official here, my job is really to talk about the politics or the policy. Um, I know that there are people watching this and certainly my colleagues on it who have been working in forest management for years and even decades. Um, But for the purposes of tonight's webinar, I am really going to focus on a very recent period of forest and wildfire management policy and that is a period starting in the summer of 2018. Some of you no doubt remember that summer. It was a summer of smoke and fire here in Southern Oregon. Um, There were 1,800 fires across the state. In mid-July here in Southern Oregon, we had 160 wildfires that were ignited in a lightning storm. The Taylor and Klondike fires, which were down here, torched then alone 220,000 acres of Oregon forest land. That was the most expensive fire season we've ever had in the state. There were fires totaled $514 million, um, and about 100 million of that was attributed to the state. Those are costs that the state of Oregon had to pick up. Clearly, um, the summer that we experienced in 2018 was indicative of changes that we'd seen starting to occur across the years. We know now that fire season is 60 days longer than it used to be. It's starting earlier, and it's more expensive than it's ever been. In the period from 2006 to 2012 that wasn't that long ago we averaged fire season of about 15,000 acres at a cost of less than 10 million dollars. In the years since 2012 We have averaged fire seasons of 55,000 acres and in many cases, um, 10 times that uh, at an average cost of $62 million for the state. So significant changes that we're starting to see. So in the summer of 2018, um, after Southern Oregon had experienced six weeks of choking smoke where we couldn't let our children go outside to play and we all walked around with our face masks, uh, actually an experience that seems quite um, familiar at this point. Um, I pulled together a smoke and wildfire summit um, held at Southern Oregon University because it was really clear to me that we as a community were dispirited. We needed to come together to figure out how we were actually going to remain a resilient community, understanding that smoke and wildfire were going to be a part of our future. And 400 people showed up. Um, which was just an indication of how much people needed to come together to understand the impact of smoke and fire. And in that summit, we addressed um, wildfire in its multifaceted ways. We looked at forest management, we looked at economic impacts, at health health implications, and we recognized that climate um, is an exacerbating factor in the kinds of wildfire seasons that we are experiencing. Two months after that, Paradise, California went up in flames and we, as we watched from a distance. So the reality of smoke and wildfire uh, was more clear uh, in front of us than it had ever been. That no- November, December, um, Governor Kate Brown un- uh, unveiled her proposed budget for the next biennium. And in it, she uh, suggested the development of what she called a Council on Wildfire Response. Um, this was the governor's effort to recognize that we are experiencing these different kinds of wildfire seasons and that we need to actually start doing things differently. The Council on Wildfire Response then was convened in the spring of 2019. It was chaired by a gentleman named Nat Donegan, who many of you know, a lot of experience in timber and in public service. And it was comprised of a variety of stakeholders, including some people who were new to the subject, for example, um, the head of Care Oregon. The intention was to really make it clear that wildfire affects the state as a whole. Um, It's not relegated to one part of the state or or one business sector, Um, and that we all needed to sit down and take a holistic approach to understand how to deal with it in the future. The Wildfire Council convened in 2019, as I noted, it labored through that year with the intention of developing recommendations that would be considered in the 2020 legislature. Um, As in our earlier summit, the one we did in Ashland, uh, the Wildfire Council really understood the wildfire is not just about trees and fire. It's it's about the way we live our lives. It's about the way we are able to make make a living. Um, and it needs to be addressed in a comprehensive holistic way. way. Eventually, the council adopted that framework, a framework proposed by the National Cohesive Wildland Fire Management, um, that strategy. And you heard this mentioned by um, Chris Chambers, and I think the other Chris as well. That strategy really established three goals, the fire adapted communities, um, resilient landscapes and wildfire response. We understood, as we looked at the framework that had been set up by the National Cohesive Wildland, that it was really um, extremely appropriate for adoption in our own, on our own Oregon landscape. Fi- the fire adapted community section of the recommendations took up land use changes, addressed defensible space, Um, Talked about the utilities and the need for utilities to work with the Public Utility um, Commission to make sure that they are prepared for wildfire situations. Talked about the need for us to develop good emergency response systems when we do have a fire, to look at smoke mitigation, to look at economic recovery uh, in the the case of an event. The wildfire response set, uh, response part of the recommendations um, looked at the budget issues and the impossibility of really continuing to believe that we can fight wildfires with a budget um, that was really compri- put together in another decade. Um, when, when the cost of fighting wildfires has gone from $10 million to an average of $62 million, and sometimes many tens of millions more than that, um, we need to take a different approach. And so there were recommendations in the council's findings for really funding um, fire. But the most significant takeaway from the Wildfire Council's recommendations was around resilient landscapes. Um, This is an issue that we really had not addressed on the scale that was proposed in the Wildfire Council um, report. And what that report said was that the state should look at making over 20 years a $4 billion investment in forest mitigation work including thinning and prescribed burning, potentially taking on 5.6, as many as 5.6 million acres. Now, there's, this is not without controversy. There are lots of people who question um, whether or not the work needs to be done at that scale. But I think the significant takeaway of all of this was that the, the um, Wildfire Council was clear that forest restoration needed to be designed and implemented with the goal of creating the most resilient forest environment, but not with the intention of producing logs. Um, A a very significant takeaway. What that meant, of course, was that it would cost money for us to get our forest um, to the point where they are resilient and fire resistant. It was an ambitious and it was a global goal Um, Again, not without controversy, there were questions left unanswered. For example, the role of private interests in sharing the costs of fire suppression, something that we we didn't come away, we didn't appropriately answer. Um, Questions uh, about forest management on private land. Um, And certainly uh, not unaddressed, but but not central to the report was the question of climate change and, and what kind of policies we need to put into effect. to to actually address the the mitigating factor of climate change. Um, The council's work was put in the form of legislation that was considered in the legislature's 2020 short session. Now, short session means also chaotic session. It's a session that can't be any more than 35 days in in length. And I wanna really call out um, my colleague, State Senator Jeff Golden, who was the chair of the Senate Wildfire Committee that, that put together considered and eventually passed the legislation um, that was was put forward. Uh, It was a short and chaotic session um, and it was further complicated by budget issues that emerged during that session within the Oregon Department of Forestry. In the end, a couple of bills were put together. Um, One of them would have allocated $25 million for as many as 15 pilot projects. These would be on lands already NEPA approved, with the goal of demonstrating what we can achieve through fuel reduction and restoration of forest resiliency. A second bill um, was broader. It would have picked up a number of recommendations within the Wildfire Council report, including utility wildfire mitigation um, and the beginning of good discussions around planning and land use, um, and also some mapping pieces. Um, Not in those bills, but calculated in the end of session budget would have been $50 million to go to the Oregon Department of Forestry to cover both the forest, to look at sort of a down payment on forest costs in the 2020 um, season, and also to backfill huge holes that had emerged in the department's budget. So we all good up to that point. Um, And then we talk about best laid plans, which, um, and, and that legislation Uh, was really upended by uh, in a couple of cases. Uh, First, we were not able to finish the short session because we had a walkout by some of our legislative colleagues. Um, Eventually, the session was dismissed with nearly all of our work um, yet to be completed. We that wouldn't that alone wouldn't have been so bad because I think what would have happened is eventually we would have come back for a special session and the legislation that had been keyed up. I feel confident would have been passed. Um, And then you, but you know what happened next. And that was the emergence of the coronavirus. So here we are. The momentum is interrupted. Um, Basically, the state is facing probably a 2 to $3 billion um, loss. We'll know more when we hear um, the first budget analyses that will be provided in the latter part of May. We have left ODF starting fire season with unresolved budget issues. Um, ODF basically has $10 million in the Forest Land and Protection Fund um, and is, I think, fair to say managing crisis to crisis. Um, Longer term, we are going to have a hard time getting back to where we were at the end of that short session because we are looking at a budget um, that's going to be devastated, I think, for the next year. It's going to be hard for us to maintain our existing conservation programs. Um, Getting back to the point where where we were anticipating actually putting significant dollars into forest restoration policies uh, on the ground, I think is gonna be a while. So what is it we will do? And I would suggest the good news here. And that is, although the particular work around forest management that was forwarded through the Wildfire Council, um, put into effect in in the form of of legislation has been interrupted, there are three other good venues, conversations that are still ongoing where I think we can do important forest management policy work. Um, the first is through what was a historic um, deal that was negotiated be- between timber and environmental interests and announced at the beginning of the short session. had nothing to do with legislators or elected officials. It was a group of timber and environmental interests who came together realizing they were going to have a big fight over ballot battles unless they figured out how to work together. And they did. Um, they have proposed a, a mediated effort to develop what's known as habitat conservation plans. Um, this is a federally approved um, avenue that enables private uh, us to talk about how private forests should be managed with an eye toward ensuring protection of vulnerable species and water resources. Um, as part of this negotiated plan were some constraints around aerial spraying and some requirements of notification as well as increased um, protective buffers governing, governing streamside logging in the SISCUs, which is something many people have been working for for a long time. So it's a terrific deal. It also needs a piece of legislation to put the mediation and the aerial spring um, uh, program in effect. Um, the good news is they're still working on it. And when we do get back to Salem, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, to forward that work. Um, the second, concert, the second uh, conversation that's still ongoing is the question of shared stewardship between the federal government and the state of Oregon. In August 2019, the state and federal officials signed an MOU to formalize our intention to bring together lots of stakeholders, including tribes, our forest collaboratives, local governments, and others, and establish a 20-year plan for forest management and investment. Um, that process is only beginning, um, and there could be significant and seminal decision making um, as part of that that we'll all want to watch. And finally, um, the next, the, the the last area that I'd like to note, and it's last but certainly not least, is in climate work. Um, the The big blow up in the short session was the legislature's failure to agree on climate legislation, because we were unable to agree. The governor took over and shortly after the end of the short session, uh, announced a a climate executive order, which will um, get us, we hope, to the climate um, carbon emissions goal, which is to get us to 80% um, of climate and carbon emissions, uh, to 80% of 1990 levels of carbon emissions by the year 2050. Um, The executive order is broad, comprehensive, it includes acceleration of our clean fuels program. It looks at building code updates. And significant to the Oregon Department of Forestry, it directs state agencies to integrate climate considerations in budgeting, planning, investments, and policy making. Um, we have an Oregon Department of Forestry that's going to be looking at significant budget cuts. But as it makes those budget cuts, um, this is will be a great opportunity to redesign the program that remains with the climate considerations in place. Um, So lots of opportunity for remaking what's on the ground in the Oregon Department of Forestry. Uh, So policy is changing quickly, Um, COVID has not made it any easier and we still have a good path ahead.
1: Thank you so much Pam. Um, I I see that we're at the top of the hour and um, if folks can just stick with us for a few minutes, we're gonna do some Q&A and we understand if you have to leave. Um, you can always go back and, and view this, um, we're recording it. It's also um, streaming on Facebook. So we'll make sure that this is made available to you if you have to leave. But I think um, we have some great experts here and we'd love to ask them a few questions. And we have great participation and lots of great questions to ask. So maybe what I'm gonna do here is uh, I'll just kind of go through the panelists and, and um, I have a couple questions for each. So I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Dunn. Um, There's several questions that are related to you know what type of forestry really increases or decreases um, fire severity. Um, There's a lot of questions around um, about plant tree plantations on private land. So one was uh, there was a particularly scary picture of a high intensity fire inside of a timber plantation. What's the impact of thinning Uh, Natural forest landscape to make it look like a tree plantation. So maybe a question around, you know, plantations and thinning and, you know, what's the what's the right approach for forestry to um, To make resilient forests.
2: Uh, Well, that's a good question, you know. Thinning and say clear cutting or plantation forestry are two very, very different management strategies. Uh, The image you saw was certainly of an industrial model or a timber production solely model, solely focused model that uh, creates a structure of fuels, i.e. interconnected crowns, um, that really can be explosive like you saw in that image. Um, And and we have done research that has demonstrated that. Um, Concurrently, you know, we also see if you manage for smaller trees, smaller trees are less resilient or resistant in this case to death by fire. So bigger trees, thicker bark, a little bit more spaced out can be much more resilient. And that is a condition that uh, can be created and has been created um, within the Ashland Forest Restoration or Resiliency Project that uh, Chief Chambers showed. uh, And you saw some images of what that can look like. That type of thinning is very different. And the outcomes of a fire burning through that can be very different than the outcomes burning through a plantation forest.
1: Thanks. Another question for you since uh, you have the floor. With uh, small local resources focused on uh, limiting the size of fire camps, is it likely that far out rural properties will just be abandoned and unlikely to be saved? Um, what are the areas that are most likely to be you know, abandoned if we have limited resources?
2: I don't think that there's gonna be any Uh, abandonment of rural or non-rural communities. I think what we're going to see is a directed focus at those uh, more than other places. And that can be through point protection where they're directed at just protecting those structures and those homes as a fire moves around it if necessary. So that that's a, a common and viable strategy when you can't go to full containment. And so I, I don't expect and and have never really worked with a firefighter that would suggest abandoning a prod a, a piece of property um, even when they're stressed on resources. And so I, I just think it's a it's a shift of the strategy from trying to stop a full flaming front to trying to protect a structure uh, itself, and that we call point protection. And of course, Chief, Chief Chambers can can. Um, elicit more of, of what that means, if you want to weigh in as well. Um, but I, I wouldn't expect you're going to be abandoned. What, what may be abandoned would be wildlands or uh, forest timberlands. And there are some consequences to that as well. But the structures themselves and the people will be protected.
1: Chief Chambers, you, do you um, want to chime in on that? Like, what, what do you see is different yeah. in, in the fire departments and their approaches during this pandemic?
4: I think you also have to consider the scale of the fire when you're talking about a large fire that's a really complex, a lot of people working on it, it's likely been burning for many days or many weeks. That's a really different scenario than a local fire just started and we need people to go there now and put it out to protect homes and people that second scenario, the small fire start uh, on the edge of a community in a community that I think is not gonna change any of this fire season. We're still gonna get out there and try to put that fire out to the best of our ability. It's really when you start marshaling people together in these larger camps and start amassing people that you run into uh, more of the distancing issues. So um, as far as like the local fire chiefs association is concerned, we're not gonna change a whole lot of what we do if that fire is burning within the same day if we start to go into the second day of the fire, the third day of the fire, that's where things will start to change. And a lot of the um, uh, adaptations that uh, Dr. Dunn described are gonna be employed to keep people apart. Locally, when our uh, folks are deployed, they can usually go home at night. And so that kind of keeps uh, a lot of the problems away um, with you know communal living and fire camps and meals and sanitation and all that. Great. Another question for you, uh, Chief
1: Chambers is about uh, budgets and and the amount of money that is available to do this work. So, and uh, it seems like there's also some interest like how much money is going to do the defensible space around the homes and communities in town versus how much money is going to do, um, you know, that work maybe kind of a bit further in the back country.
4: That's a hard question to answer because there are often really different pots of money that go to different purposes. There's money earmarked for fighting fires during the summer, which really isn't the same money that's going to thin defensible space around houses um, At at all times of the year. So I, I I can't really say at the federal level what money is earmarked for for what purpose. Um, There are pots of money on both sides. Uh, certainly, one thing we're looking forward to is the fire funding fix that Congress passed a, a couple of years ago. That's coming into play this year, where uh, instead of the Forest Service, if they overrun on their wildfire suppression uh, spending, instead of taking that money from prevention programs and things like recreation, that money actually gets taken from a large uh, fire funding pot in FEMA. and so. The Forest Service doesn't have to rate its accounts and then set itself back because it can't do the prevention work ahead of the fires every year so that is a uh, a step in the right direction and we're always lobbying for more uh, money to go toward the prevention and forest restoration side uh, something a program that would um, be called the Collaborative Forest Landscape Restoration Program or CFLRP which uh, the Rogue Siskiyou has just put in for a 10-year a 80 million dollar uh, project that would be spread out uh, through a lot of Southern Oregon um, probably into Northern California as well great thanks um,
1: so a question a couple of questions for you Pam um, you have a really easy one here from your colleague um, senator Jeff golden um, so I'll ask that of you um, and it's a uh, how, how can we forge a viable strategy for wildfire fuels reduction? How much acreage, where, involving how much commercial harvest, without reigniting the timber wars? How? What community groups to bring to the table?
5: He asked me that question.
1: <laughs> well, he asked it just <laughs> to anyone, so I thought I would give it to you, <laughs> um, well, think- or maybe just thinking about how to how to how to how to move forward, how to forge better. Um, better relationships and and and
5: uh see I good think, work done honestly i think and the experience that we've had with smoke and wildfire has um helped us understand that there's really valuable work to do together um we um we don't want to hand the forest i mean we don't want to hand the forest over to the timber industry to take care of restoration for us. So we need to be practical and think together about um, work that we can do within our communities and um, within our watersheds to keep our communities as safe as possible. And it seems to me that if we can stay sort of focused on what we can do together and take it step by step and do these pilot projects, and actually see what happens on the ground and see if we build social license for doing this work, um, we, we can develop a program that makes sense. I think, uh, I, I appreciated the Wildfire Council's uh, very ambitious goals um, because I think it, it was important to say wildfire is an issue that affects everything in Oregon, it affects how we live our lives, how we recreate, um, how we can make a living But I don't think it's helpful to actually start with those goals in in mind, because I think that um, makes a a lot of us really question where it is that we're going and where those resources are going to come from. Starting step by step, putting pilot projects down on the ground, bringing people together to look at those, making it clear the projects will be vetted by communities um, and they will be designed to fit the landscape, I think will provide us with a path forward.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Pam. Um and I think Chris Chambers wants to ask Chris Dunn something. <laughs>
4: well I just uh I just wanted to, to chime in and, and Dr. Dunn talked about the uh the quantitative risk assessment approach and I think that offers a lot of direction as to where we would spend limited resources to make the, the biggest bang for the buck on the landscape.
1: So that's something that shows us where the those communities that are most vulnerable, right?
4: Sure. Not only communities, but habitats uh, that are vulnerable. Uh, you can build climate modeling into that and how to adapt to forests. So that's actually already been done for Southwest Oregon. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of tools at our fingertips that can help us push this effort forward. Um, and, you know, there's, it's not a lot of time to waste. I, I look to forest collaboratives across the state who have already been doing these pilot projects. They've already been drawing up their lessons learned. There's a lot of reporting done by Oregon State and University of Oregon together on what makes Forest collaboratives successful in the Blue Mountains of Oregon and the Deschutes and in Southwest Oregon here. Uh, And I think that we've learned a lot of those lessons and we can apply a lot of them pretty quickly to the landscape and move forward to increase the pace and scale uh, of thinning and forest restoration and reintroducing fire.
1: Okay. Uh, Chris, did you have anything to add to that? Dr. Chris?
2: No. You good? Oh, I, I think that's pretty good if we, if we want to move on. I, I, I do think, you know, one of the benefits of that quantitative perspective or that quantitative data is we can really play some scenarios and, and, and use it as in decision support and really being informative to each other uh, and, and what we might, might want to accomplish. And so that, that's really nice to have when it's all put together and put together well. And put together collaboratively.
1: Well, thank thank you all so much. Just maybe one last thing for Pam. And you know, as we think about these budgets and everything, I know it has a lot of us concerned. Is there anything more you wanted to say about you know how we might how this budget shortfall might affect our our fire season?
5: Well, um, I, as I noted, ODF is really starting with the ten million dollars um, budget, which comes from the timber harvest. Um, we will have to find money to fight fires. I don't know where that will come from. I know that the governor's office and the treasury and ODF and the legislature are going to have to find a path forward because we cannot run out of budget uh, money in the middle of fire season. I think the, the longer term questions are um, how ODF uh, manages an, an 8.5% budget uh, cut which is what's being asked of every department in the state as a result of coronavirus shortages. Um, the question is really what's left um, within ODF uh, that um, that the conservation community will embrace. And then over time, it's where are we going to find the resources um, that we know we need to continue to invest in these forest resiliency projects because Unless we want logs and log harvest to be the driver, they cost money. And we need to come up with public and private sources of investment so that we can continue to make sure that that work um, is done for the benefit of the forest um, and, and not as a log producing, money producing effort. So it's a question. We don't know.
1: All right, thank you all so much. And thanks for everyone that stuck around for some Q&A. And um, I'm now gonna turn it back over to Alexi to wrap up this webinar so we can all go back to our shelters in place.
0: Thank you to everyone for joining us and for your great questions. And thanks to our panelists for a wonderful um, discussion. A reminder that we will send you all a follow-up email containing resources covered during today's webinar. Included in that email will be a recorded webinar link and a follow-up survey to get your feedback. Um, all this information will also be available on our website at kswild.org. Also on our website, you will find more information and registration links for the next three webinars in our series. Join us next Tuesday for our second webinar called Climate Smart Conservation. And with that, we want to give a big thanks to our panelists and to everyone for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy it.